Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. Um, this is our second take of our intro after the first one was quickly made uh, basically out of date by a late-breaking order from the Supreme Court in the ongoing legal fight between the Department of Justice and former President Donald Trump over classified records seized from Mar-a-Lago. Long story short, and we're going to get to it in a second, but the Supreme Court denied Trump's emergency request without any noted dissents. By way of background, Trump had filed this request asking the Supreme Court to allow a special master to have access to the classified records. Uh, Federal prosecutors are reviewing whether Trump broke the law and should be basically indicted for having taken boxes of classified records from the White House and storing them in an unsecure location at Mar-a-Lago after leaving office. So you want to kind of break down this latest update, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the the big takeaway. It's denied. Um, No real reasoning because it was a one-line order. Um, I will say, you know, this request... Um, to allow the special master to review the classified documents. Um, It it, it goes into some complex, but I think important procedural background here. Um, I'll say, you know, the district court originally ordered um, a special master to review these documents and also restricted prosecutors from accessing the documents in their ongoing criminal investigation the 11th Circuit then stepped in, issued a partial stay of that decision, basically said, look, the prosecutor should be allowed to continue to review the documents. Um, and he, and the 11th Circuit okayed the special master, but restricted the special master's access to documents with classified markings. Um, of which also- there was around, I think, uh, you know, 100 documents with these classified markings, including, uh, in the words of the Department of Justice, very classified documents, some of the highest classification markings that they have out of a trove of, you know, 11,000 of the records that he had taken to Mar-a-Lago. Exactly. And I'll say that this decision today comes on the heels of a Tuesday filing from the DOJ where the U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar basically urged the court to do what they did today, deny the request um, to allow the special master um, to review those documents, which I'm assuming kind of would also just kind of trip up their own investigation, kind of put a bit of a wrench Um I'll also add, though, that this is one of many threads happening in this litigation right now. Um, I'll remind that there is also an appeal from the government of the entire special master decision playing out in the 11th Circuit, which the court last week agreed to expedite. Right. And basically, the Department of Justice says that this order appointing this special master is completely unprecedented in that, you know, courts should not be in the business of supervising ongoing federal law enforcement investigations, which is what they say is taking place right now in the context of these documents um, seized from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, just you talk about one of many threads in this litigation, one of many threads involving Trump's potential legal liability. I mean, there was just um, some updates that he could be potentially subpoenaed by the House January 6th committee that you could possibly see a scenario where that end winds up in the courts. There's also the you know litigation in New York um, over his representations in, uh, in his tax filings. So 
one of many avenues in which the legal exposure of the former president is being tested ahead of a potential rerun in uh, 2024. I'm sure an ongoing um, story that we will continue to be following as it intersects with the Supreme Court. But let's move along to away from the shadow docket and into the merits docket where there were oral arguments on Tuesday and Wednesday. So let's jump in with Wednesday's case in a dispute that features some of the more famous significant names in american pop culture history we got you know the 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 famous pioneering avant-garde pop artist in andy warhol and the obviously late great uh pop musician in prince natalie tell us how did we get here and what are we talking about in this case Yes. So this one, as you said, kind of a fun, funky one. Um, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith is the name of the case. It's a copyright battle. Um, So the central question in this case surrounds a portrait photo of Prince taken by the photographer Lynn Goldsmith, which was later altered by Warhol for a magazine article. The original photo was kind of a standard black and white. Prince looks kind of somber. And Warhol did his thing on this, right? kind of flattened the image, turned it orange. If you're familiar with Warhol's work at all, it has a certain kind of silkscreen look, which is what he did here. Now, Goldsmith, the photographer, was paid for the original use of her photo, but later on received no money or credit for when Warhol's work was used by Condé Nast in 2016 when Prince, the musician, passed away. Litigation between Goldsmith and the Warhol Foundation ensued, with the central question being whether Warhol's work was transformative enough of the original photo to qualify as fair use. The Second Circuit last year said it was not. The Andy Warhol Foundation is appealing that decision. Yeah, it was really interesting going back and taking a look at the different arguments presented by both sides. You have the attorney for the Warhol Foundation basically saying that the Supreme Court has laid out a test for whether something qualifies as a fair use of an original artwork that should get exempted from the copyright laws. And what they say that test is, is whether or not the new artwork has a new meaning or distinctive feature that transforms the message. This would be the transformation test of the fair use doctrine. They say that uh, Warhol's work and portrait of the original Goldsmith Prince photograph qualifies under those criteria because it kind of has this new meaning that it imparts on what was originally a very cold and somber portrait of Prince, transforming it into this kind of flattened pop art image that almost in, in, in the telling of their attorney speaks to kind of the commodification of celebrity in modern life. So they say that that new message in and of itself is enough to give the Warhol work this uh, protection from copyright enforcement under the fair use doctrine. Now, what we heard from uh, the photo, the photographer's attorney, Lisa Blatt, um, was basically that that test is a very dangerous one that could decimate various art industries like photography, where you could have all of these copyright uh, copycats and derivative works do nothing more than just add a little splash of color or some transformative element in order to claim to have a new meaning, thus being exempt from having to pay things like licensing fees. Which she said, you know, some of the great artists, whether you're talking about Warhol, whether you're talking about you know someone like Jimi Hendrix, were able to do, and that. Instead of this kind of easy-to-satisfy test of whether there's a new message, Blatt says that the 
artists should be able to prove that they would not have been able to achieve the same purpose of their work without using the original artwork. So she gives the kind of famous example of uh, Andy Warhol's soup cans, where she says that that actually would qualify as fair use because, you know, Warhol would not have been able to achieve the same purpose using some other imagery, using a generic soup can. It had to be Campbell's because the commentary that he was making with his art was a commentary on American consumerism. And in order to do that, he needed the actual brand name of Campbell's to speak to, you know, using flipping advertising on its head and turning it into a, a commentary or a parody of American consumerism. So that's kind of the basic analytical outline of the two sides in the case. Natalie, I'm wondering, you know, listening to the justices' questions, what you made of how, you know, the justices perceived both of those sides of the case. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think that Campbell's soup imagery, as you mentioned, was a, a good strong argument, frankly, on the photographer's side um, and help one one that helped to like illuminate the debate in terms of, you know, she's arguing that Prince's image kind of added a bare purpose to add new meaning for profit, right, for, for the Warhol image. I will say, though, that the justices seem to push back on her argument that there should be this kind of stronger limit um, put on the fair use analysis and where there has to be kind of a purpose for using the older image in the new image. Um, and, you know, Justice Kagan particularly noted that the court has never put out that limit and has always left the door open to new art being able to have a fair use of some original image or original creation without it necessarily commenting on the original image. Um, the last time I will say the court considered whether a piece of art was fair use was in 1994's Campbell versus Acuf Rose Music, where the court said that a work is transformative, it adds something new with a further purpose or different character, you know, altering the first with a new expression, meaning, or message. Um, so the justices did particularly kind of kind of push back on, you know, whether there should be a stronger test to that. Um, although on the um, on the flip side, I will say there was some sympathy for the arguments that Blatt was making about, you know, this being too broad, being too too generalized, and that there's not enough of a kind of a bright line here for for the courts to be able to stop, you know, potential copycats of certain photographic images. Right. I mean, you had Alito basically saying like, look, you're asking us, you're asking courts, judges to determine what, like whether something qualifies as a new meaning and having that be the baseline for whether it should be exempt from, you know, the copyright laws. And he's saying like, how do you do that? Do you call you know, Andy Warhol to testify about his artwork. And I think there was a lot of concern on the bench about just kind of expanding the the fair use doctrine to encompass any anything that could reasonably per, be perceived as having some sort of a new meaning. If you if you kind of move out of the kind of world of, you know, art and art exhibits or photography and go to something like movies and television, you know, uh, there was a really interesting exchange with Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was asking 
about whether something like the movie treatment of a book, in, in the case of her example, she was using the, the, the movie adaptations of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, whether that is some sort of new meaning that could potentially be exempt from the copyright laws. And, and you can imagine how concerning that is for not just the, you know, the, the Supreme Court, but also like the entire kind of book in Hollywood industry saying, well, that could jeopardize, you know, these license and royalty agreements that they use for movie treatments of books, which uh, of the source material, which is obviously a huge industry and a huge way that a lot of authors make money. Um, so there was kind of one fascinating exchange where Lisa Blatt is, is talking about just that same argument, that same slippery slope argument. And she's uh, she's referencing a kind of a famous television writer and producer from the 1970s named Norman Lear, who had all these big hit TV shows and there were numerous spinoffs. And she said, you know, Norman Lear is probably like spinning in his grave listening to this. Well, <laughs> it turns out that Norman Lear is not spinning in his grave because he's still alive. But uh, that was just one kind of funny moment in an otherwise pretty Pretty funky, pretty funky two-hour hearing there. Yeah, that that I I will say that is an awkward comment to have on the record at the Supreme Court. Um, although in Lisa Blatt's defense, I will say I did not know Norman Lear was still alive. Well, it turns out he's a hundred years old, so I, I suppose you you could be forgiven for that. Um, but now I think we learned something else very important uh, during uh, <laughs> yesterday's oral arguments. We learned a couple of things, you know, as you kind of alluded to, I think the pop culture topic and particular facts of this case just kind of lent themselves to, you know, anecdotes, pop culture references and some lighthearted moments. Um, and among those moments, uh, we heard, I think, I, I think this was probably the one that stood out the most was that um, at one point, Justice Thomas referred to himself as a fan of Prince, the music artist in the 80s. And Justice Kagan kind of teased him was like, what, no longer? Like, you're not a, a fan anymore? And he replied, well, so only on Thursday night. Uh, and Justice Thomas got some la uh, some laughs for that one. Um, that, I think, was kind of like the big lighthearted moment of oral arguments for this case. Certainly an interesting one. I'm going to have the image of Justice Thomas rocking out to Prince in my head all day. Um <laughs> Maybe that'll be some fodder for an SNL skit. We'll see. Um, but yeah, let's let's turn to another case. Uh, this one was a pretty interesting one as well. We're going to try to stay relatively clear of the weeds, but it might not be possible in this particular one because it involves the Dormant Commerce Clause. I can see your eyes glazing over already. No, but st stay with me here. The Dormant what? Commerce no. Clause of the I'm awake. <laughs> So basically, the case is called National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. It was argued, as I say, on Tuesday. The argument stretched to about two hours. And what it is, is it's a pork industry challenge to a California animal welfare ballot initiative that basically put minimum standards of confinement for pigs whose meat is sold in California. In other words, under this ballot initiative, if you want to sell pork in the state of California, the pig 
the, the meat from which is being sold has to have been raised in basically what, what Californians consider to be decently humane and not cruel conditions. So that means that the, the breeding pig, the sow in this case, would have you know room to, to stand, to sit, to lay down, to turn around and have, I think, a minimum of about 24 square feet in the, the conditions in the, in the enclosure in which they are raised. This is all good and well, and I think an important regulation that California seems to have put out there. How does this fit in with interstate commerce? So to use a bad pun, here's the rub, uh, which we'll call a smoky barbecue rub here. It turns out that California does not raise that many pigs. So that's kind of a surprise to me, given that I picture, you know, Los Angeles as being filled with like, you know, carnitas tacos and Filipino lechon. It's a big pork consuming state. I mean, you got 13% of the nation's total pork consumption takes place in California. Um, but it turns out, like I said, they don't raise that many pigs. And in fact, over 99% of pork consumed in the state actually comes from out of state. So chances are when you're chowing down on the those carnitas tacos that you're chowing down on an out of state pig. So yes, California is trying to regulate its own market, but out-of-state pork producers say they're going to be the ones bearing these increased costs associated with complying with Proposition 12, this ballot initiative. And according to the National Pork Producers Council, that is a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause, which prohibits states from passing laws that burden interstate commerce or discriminate against out-of-state commerce. Okay, so first, you've made me hungry with this line of discussion. (laughs) Uh, But second... Tell me why this pork case is so significant. Okay, so we're going to get out of here and get to lunch, and uh, I will try to make this as brief as possible. But basically, California's law presents some novel questions under the Dormant Commerce Clause that could have pretty far-reaching implications. Now, when a state typically passes one of these laws that raise questions under the Dormant Commerce Clause, there's usually a health and safety rationale, some claimed benefit on the part of the state to protect its own citizens. Now, it's true that California claims that there are some of those benefits in this case. They say that the incidence of like foodborne illness is reduced when you have these kind of more humane conditions, but they're also making the argument that the state benefit that they are defending with Proposition 12 is the moral interests of the voting uh, electorate that the residents of California have come together and decided as a community that they are not going to tolerate what they consider to be cruel and inhumane conditions of pigs um, whose meat they're eating and that they have the right to make that decision. Now, that actually gets into some kind of new areas of the law when you talk about potentially burdensome regulations that are grounded in these moral reasons. Now, there's a Supreme Court test that basically asks courts under the Dormant Commerce Clause to balance the claimed benefits of the state against the burdens of complying with the law on interstate commerce. And But with that additional element of morality, there's kind of an interesting question of how courts are going to be judging those benefits against the burdens. And, you know, at oral arguments on Tuesday, you had some concerns by the by uh, by some of the justices. I mean, Justice Elena Kagan was one of them who's envisioning like basically a scenario where, you know, states are like at war with one another over these retaliatory and discriminatory regulations because they have like different 
understandings of the universe and morality views and political leaning. She talks about the balkanization in today's modern environment and how it's not inconceivable that, you know, you have a situation where California is at war with Texas and Texas is at war with California. She says, do we really want a scenario in which everyone's at each other's throats? And I mean, Chief Justice Roberts was another one who was concerned. He was like, you know, how do we weigh California's claimed morality benefits against, let's say, maybe the morality benefits claimed by these out-of-state producers who might say that, you know, it's in their view that it's a moral and good thing to raise pork as cheaply and cost-effectively as possible, and that may, in the views of Californians, be inhumane. Like, how do you balance the two? So, Yes, this is, we're kind of in kind of weird new territory here where you have potential regulations that could be based on, you know, a citizen's view uh, of like which, what's right and wrong. But, uh, you know, the court did its best to try and fit this case within the, the existing framework under the Dormant Commerce Clause. Personally, I enjoy any weird new territory, but uh, did any of the justices appear sympathetic to California? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, Justice Neil Gorsuch was probably the most vocally sympathetic at oral arguments on Tuesday to uh, California in this case. I mean, most people might think of him as like the big anti-regulation libertarian on the court. But I think first and foremost, he's an originalist. He's an originalist and a textualist. And not to get too in the weeds here, but some originalists and textualists like Gorsuch, like uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, and like the late Justice Antonin Scalia, they actually take find a lot of fault in the court's dormant commerce clause jurisprudence. They think that basically the Constitution doesn't even include these restrictions on the state's ability to regulate interstate commerce at all. I mean, remember, this comes from, this is an implied uh, basically an implied concept in constitutional law. Everybody knows the Commerce Clause. It gives Congress the ability to regulate interstate commerce. Well, why do they call it the Dormant Commerce Clause? Because implied in that, according to you know early 19th century justices, that implies that states kind of don't have the authority to burden and regulate interstate commerce in some way. So, you know, uh, according to some originalists like Gorsuch, the the Constitution, it grants Congress this authority over interstate commerce, but it doesn't say anything about stripping the states of this authority. And so at oral arguments, he was really using it as an opportunity, a sounding board, if you will, of like fleshing out those views. He he basically says like, look, you know, why should we read these atextual economic rights into the Constitution where it's basically silent? And why shouldn't we defer to the moral judgments of California and the kind of moral justifications that they have adopted for regulating their own marketplace. He was very unsure of why this, you know, isn't just completely within the purview of Californians to decide to do. So, so yeah, there was at least one very sympathetic justice. So what do we think is going to happen in this case? You know, it's funny. I, I talked to some kind of law professors and scholars about this case, and I was, I asked them that same exact question because it was a pretty long and complicated hearing, much like the Andy Warhol case. And they were basically like, look, I have no clear understanding of how this case is going to be resolved than before oral arguments started. Um, but one uh, professor I spoke to, Michael Knoll of the University of Pennsylvania, he has written on the Dormant Commerce Clause, and he is pretty unconvinced that you know Gorsuch is going to be able to convince the Supreme Court to chuck out the Dormant Commerce Clause, that, that, that the court is going to use this case as an opportunity to basically say, yeah, you know, we've kind of revisited the Constitution and we don't think states have 
any restrictions against passing burdensome laws affecting interstate commerce. That's probably not going to happen in this case. I think we probably would have seen a lot more tough questions from the justices against the uh, attorney representing the pork council. But um, it is going to be interesting how the court manages to fit this case within its existing doctrinal jurisprudence, how they're going to do so in maybe a narrow or broad way that could potentially have pretty big effects on other states going forward. I mean, you can imagine a number of scenarios in which this could come up, whether you're talking about, you know, modern debates about uh, climate change, uh, whether you're talking about abortion. I mean, you could think of a number of ways in which states could try and burden interstate commerce based on these kind of views of their own morality. Well, like you said, it'll certainly be one we're going to keep watching. I think both these cases are higher on our radar as the as the term continues along. But I think, Jimmy, this just about does it for us today. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, contributing reporters, Tiffany Hu and Carolina Bellato and Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, Go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.